How do you describe Arlo Guthrie? Arlo is a songwriter of wit, of understanding, who has, so if you might say, an tangential look at the human comedy. Ten what? Tangential. Oh, okay. uh, side like, sort of offbeat like Arlo is, happens to be in town at this moment, and by the time you hear this, he would have left town performing at some of the campuses around town. And so we'll just be talking with Arlo Guthrie, some of the songs he's written, songs of his colleagues, and perhaps a song or two his father used to sing, too. And we can talk about a new book about his father, Woody Guthrie by Joe Klein, an excellent biography indeed. So in a moment, Arlo Guthrie, his songs and his reflections. Oh, okay. After, <laughs> after, after this message. I was thinking, Manzanillo, a very poignant, poignant song, Arlo Guthrie, from your album, Amigo. I think you live in the Berkshires of Massachusetts. Here you're singing of a certain memory of uh, Mexico. Isn't that nice? I didn't write that song. It was written by a guy yeah. by the name of Rabbit Mackay. Uh -huh. But it was it was so nice to do it. I want to go now. Now I'm, I haven't heard it for who knows how long. I think also the of the, the backing too is a mariachi type backing the band has there. Too. Yeah, real nice exactly. guys. It's funny uh, as I think of that. We, this can be free association because with you it's that anyways. <laughs> I think your father Woody heard a song called Deportee. That? Yeah. Uh, I think, again, of, of a certain area, region, people came from there to find a living here. And so Manzanillo Bay is another aspect of the people and the beauty of it. What do you look for? This is a silly question. In a, a song that you sing or write, is there some one thing you look for? Uh, it's difficult, to, you know. Uh, even songs like uh, that I've written myself sometime are not my kind of songs. I can think of them in my head that they're mine while I'm writing them, but they may not end up being songs that I can sing myself. So some songs are more mine than even people who have written them, like City of New Orleans. Uh, is a real good example of a song that I think is a song that ended up being more mine than Steve's, even though he wrote it. Mm. Whereas uh, there are a lot of songs yeah. that I've written that other people yeah. could probably. That's interesting. Do. Even though you write a song, it's your song. You write, it's not for you as a performer. That is not as much as it might be for someone else. Right. Whereas Steve Goodman is quite marvelous. We'll hear that later. City Mornings. As you interpret it. Yeah. So you know. Thinking so I don't know what it takes to uh, yeah. you know think of a song for me. I, yeah. uh, it's something that I usually have to crawl into. I have to be able to believe it myself. Mm. Now I was thinking about about. Uh, you and your humor, of course. Uh, you're best known, of course, for Alice's Restaurant, which some might call a folk song oratorio or Adventures on the Road. Uh, and it's your also approach to humor. Was it, it, a lot of free association is in your writing, too, isn't it? I don't know yeah. if it's... It probably starts off being that. But unless it comes together, at a, at a, uh, unless it has a focal point near the end, uh, then I don't like things that are just... Uh, Scattered. Yeah. There's always a theme. It always comes back to a theme. It's got to come back. Yeah. And then in your album, Last of the Brooklyn Cowboys, there's one called, Why don't you have a week on the rag? Right. A ragtime piece. This is you just playing it. Are you singing yeah. it too? No, no, no words. No words. Just sitting around. I did write words, but they wouldn't let me put them on. Oh, are they too raffish? In a sense. Yeah, in a sense. They were too. So this is the wordless rag. The wordless rag. Hearing Arlo Guthrie play this rag makes me think of some old-time black ragtime pianists yeah. in white. And then you That's a real important part, you know, of uh, the, the roots for our own music uh, that we're listening to today. But 
hardly anybody really goes back. If they go back, it's usually uh, ends up sounding like something that'd be on Broadway. You know, I think about you and uh, piano, instrument, piano, guitar, uh, uh, banjo. I hadn't associated you with piano, you see, but... You well, know? it's one of the... You gotta remember that the first real music that, that uh, sprung out across America was piano music because the first, uh, before there was uh, radios and stuff like that or your record players, there was piano rolls. And they were the first forms of uh, American music to really get out and around. And it was mostly this kind of ragtime mm. uh, stuff. With, and at first it was kind of classical ragtime. Yeah, a ragtime that was tied to European tradition. Oh, I was a years ago composer named Gottschalk before, and then, of course, Scott Joplin came along. And a wide oh, there are a lot of other guys, you know, but that's one of my uh, favorite kind of <coughs> things to sit around and do. What about yourself? This is interesting. There's a book about your father right now, a beautiful biography, Woody Guthrie by Joe Klein. Uh, you were a little kid, and your father was a celebrated figure, had his troubles, his travails, and his, his uh, glory, too. Uh, look, when did you when did you take to music yourself? Well, when I was a little kid, my old man wasn't really so celebrated. It was mostly after I grew up, uh, or as I was growing up, that uh, he became uh, a name that some people knew. But it was usually just uh, the people from the same kind of social political background mm -hmm. that knew of my old man or his music. Uh, it wasn't until even uh, mm. even just in the last few years, really, yeah, right. that uh, the songs have kind mm. of, or the image, or uh, the identity mm. has kind of spread out. When did you, when did you take to music? The yourself? first music that I really wrote was when I was in grammar school, and uh, I remember going. I changed from a public school to a private school when I was in the sixth grade. Something about uh, I wasn't probably doing well where I was. And so my mom sent me to one of these progressive schools to get progressed. Mm -hmm. And I went there, and they were all singing uh, songs that my father had written. Because in the progressive school uh, mind, uh, those were the songs that mm. you should sing. Margot Mayo, if you remember her, was the, uh, the music teacher. Anyway, I didn't know any of the songs. The Dust Bowl Ballads and the others. Well, the This Land, It's Your mm -hmm. Land, and uh, all of those kind of songs. I didn't even know them. And I was the only kid there that didn't know. <laughs> so I ran home and started learning his songs. I never knew that anybody else knew that my father sang songs. I mean, that was not a... I, I knew he did because I listened to the records and stuff. But I, I never heard him on the radio yeah. or anything. So I didn't yeah. know that anybody else knew about him. And that's when I really started uh, learning how to play guitar and stuff like that. And I started writing parodies uh, to Woody's music. That's right. You were kidding it. You, you were doing parodies. Sure. To, to the, uh, oh, I wrote songs that had to do with me, which was yeah. failing math or mm -hmm. uh, stuff like that. You led, eventually led to Alice's, of course. Eventually led eventually to Eventually led yeah, to yeah. that. I, thinking, since you mentioned your father, and so you sing songs that fit you, even though others wrote it. There's an old, old, no one quite knows who wrote Buffalo Skinners. I once heard your father sing that, and uh, Carl Sandberg said about the song and about your father, this is not a song, it's a saga. A word about Buffalo Singers, why you were attracted to that. Well, Buffalo Skinners is a prime example of uh, songs from the West that uh, are a complete book. Is not just a couple of verses that get 
moved around from song to song like so many others. Uh, these particular verses uh, and the way they're put together are a complete story, one that's probably real close to what it was like to be there and give you a real idea of how people thought and where they were at. Not only that, but musically, there's a weird sound in this particular song. Part of the structure of it itself is haunting. And I think that probably comes from somebody not knowing the right way to do it mm. and ended up doing it this way and it's and discovered a kind of uh, musical line that really crawls into your head. And as you say that, I think every time I've played that song, or your father's singing it, you doing it, or another version, there's something about that song as we hear it now. You know there's impending tragedy coming up. You know, as these Buffalo Skinners set out, something's going to happen to them. And you also know they're not going to take it lying down. You know something about that. It, yeah, you feel something yeah. is happening. Yeah. All the, even yeah. from the very beginning, yeah. it's, it's somebody telling you yeah. something, and you know that he's got a story. Suppose we hear Arlo Guthrie, Buffalo Skinners. Boy, that's something. That is a story told. I don't know of any folk song that has that driving, inevitable drama end yeah. quality to it. That's one of the reasons yeah. I really like it. And it's got an irony in it, too, the, the understatement one. If, if you don't do it right, you, you'll, starve on the, you'll starve on the planes and also lose your pay. Yeah, it's great. It's got that crazy irony. I think people really thought like that, though. I mean, that's, that's probably a common way of thinking. You know, to extend uh, reality. I think Woody has that in yeah. in his works too, and it's probably not just him. It's probably Oklahoma, mm -hmm. or that part of the country that has that weird uh, extension mm -hmm. of reality. It's beyond reality that makes the truth even more dramatic. Yeah. It doesn't distort the truth; that highlights it. Right. That's what. The, by the way, you say different versions of it, like condensing it. What do you mean by that? Well, there are a lot of songs that uh, are so old. Uh, uh, this one is probably uh, uh, this is in a, in a style uh, that is now this particular song is probably uniquely American now there are other songs uh, mostly when you get into murder ballads mm -hmm. and things like that that are probably European in origin uh, but have been condensed as uh, the centuries go by uh, to uh, maybe four or five verses whereas years ago maybe a hundred years ago or so they were into yeah. describing every little detail. Well, like Barbara Allen. Yeah. Well, the difference, of course, is that now, the way we listen to things, we don't sit around and have, we don't want to spend an hour listening to mm. a whole story. Mm. Because now we want to listen to a lot of stories. I got to tell you a funny story. You know, John, remember John Jacob Niles? Mm -hmm. Well, John Jacob Niles, of course, loved the old ballads, those old, old Scottish, Irish, English ballads. And one day at a, at a, one of the very early Newport folk festivals, he said, what should I sing, Stud? I'm gonna do uh, uh, Matty Groves. It's about a little page boy who, be, who, is, who is a lover of a noble lady and is betrayed by a, someone else and he's killed the woman of the guy killed by the Lord when he comes back. It's about, it has about 70 verses, Studs. Shall I sing about 55? <laughs> I said, well, let's make it about 10. 10, so I think yeah. it would go about an hour. He's gonna do an hour version. Sure. So but those old songs yeah. were like that, for people sitting around, you see, wanting to listen to a whole story, uh, a couple yeah. of stories all night. That was what they did. Of course. They didn't have the speed-up aspect of it. But what you do, what you do, and artists like you, is you 
condense it without at the same time not hurting the drama and the truth. Well, that's what Woody tried to do. Yeah, I think Woody a lot of things. Uh, Tom Jode is probably a good example of something like that, where he's condensed a whole book into 12 verses. Yeah. That, of course, is incredible. Isn't it? That's one of the incredible feats, I think, in songwriting and adapting. Tom Jode, Grapes of Wrath. He's got everything important, it seems to me. Grapes well, of he Wrath did the same thing with minutes. the Sacco and Vanzetti yeah. trial. Yeah. Really condensed yeah. uh, weeks and weeks or mm -hmm. years of information mm -hmm. into a few songs. Mm -hmm. You, by the way, you you record for Warner, Warner all all these recordings mm -hmm. are at Warner Brothers, and they're quite available too. We hope so. I think about you mentioned earlier about a someone else's song that becomes yours. You do it, and you you mentioned of course uh, Chicago's Pride and Joy, and now living on the coast is Steve Goodman, and the city of New Orleans. What has it attracted you? This is from your album Hobo's Lullaby. What has it attracted you specifically, particularly? to the city of New Orleans. Well, as a matter of fact, I was sitting around and we were sitting in the quiet night uh, and uh, Richard Harding come up and said, uh, listen, there's a guy that's got a song that would be real good for you. And I said, oh, come on, man, don't do that to me. You know, and so up steps Steve Goodman, who up to that point I had not met or knew anything about. And uh, he said, well, you know, I'd like to play this song. I said, I'll tell you what, if you buy me a beer, I'll listen to the song. So I sat down and listened to it. And at first hearing it, uh, it didn't really uh, do anything to me, but I thought it was a good song. So I said, look, why don't you do me a favor? Send me a tape and a lead sheet and stuff like that, and I'll take it home, and I'll see, you know, I'll fool with it. Anyway, it sat there on my piano for about three months, and one day I had nothing to do, and I just sat down and started playing it. And uh, I forgot how Steve had done it. You know, it just didn't occur to me. I just was reading the lead sheet. And I'm a real s slow reader, so the song slowed down, and I changed a few chords because uh, of the way I was doing it. And suddenly, it really began to grow on me, and it, uh, I got into it. I crawled into it. And uh, took it out to California and tried to record it, and we did it about six different ways. And finally, we got something I liked. So. There's a, a, a song that didn't hit me right away. I didn't think it would be a song for me. But over a period of about a year, it just kept growing on me until we finally got it to a studio. And even then it was trouble. You know, you said you crawled into it. Yes, that's interesting, see. So the song became part of you, it took time. And I guess you were seeing certain things in it yeah. you hadn't seen before, all of a sudden, bing. Yeah. It's a song for you to I sing. I still, when I sing it today, you know, or uh, as I do these days, it's it's not old for me at all. There's enough in it to keep my interest. I can really be there singing it. Oh, and before we hear you sing uh, City of New Orleans, something, something you just said. We know that you do, uh, God knows how many concerts a year you do many, and you sing some of the same songs you vary. Uh, do you always, can you always find something fresh in, say, City of New Orleans and doing it? It's not just a matter of, it's not like fresh. It's more like... Can I really get into it? If I can get into each little syllable, each little phrase, uh, then it's still something that I'm not really there, not in the way of the song itself. So it's a matter of making it as perfect as possible, and there's always something wrong. You always miss uh, the, the moment, you know, and it's a, because there are so many moments in some of these songs that it's just a matter of how many can you do right. You said you don't, this is one of the keys to excellent performers, you don't get in the way of the song because there are others who become personalities, you know, and the personality overcomes perhaps what the 
composer had. You have mind. to kind of disassociate yourself from being there, and live for that one. I mean, you have you, you, the time of it is so short. You go by a note very quickly, but unless you do that note just like you know it's going to work. You've done the song a million times. I've sung City of New Orleans a million times. It's better now than, than what we're going to hear on the record. Yeah. When I did it on the record, I had, just, I had never done the song in front of anybody before. Now it's, now it's a lot better because we've had years of singing it. Now I know more about yeah. each little word, yeah. each little thing. We'll hear this record, which was recorded about a couple of years ago, this one. This is 1972. It's eight years ago. Eight years ago. Eight Time jumps when you get up there. Time jumps. Eight years ago, Arlo writing The City of New Orleans. In hearing you sing that, Arlo, so many images come to mind. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Let's, for the moment, pause for this message, and we'll resume with Arlo Guthrie, who's my guest this morning, and uh, singing these songs and reflecting. And uh, Warner Brothers are the label he records under. Un momento. Resuming with Arlo Guthrie, that song, City of New Orleans, again. That when Thomas Wolfe wrote many of his marvelous books, these one book called A Time on the River, about 300 pages, a train trip, and he described the club car and everything on that train. It was the best description of a railroad, you know, riding mm -hmm. in a train across the country. It was, this is from, he's going from Asheville, North Carolina to Boston. Mm -hmm. And the song has that quality of bigness, Bigness, the train. The train's always been a big thing, of course. It yeah, it's always been a uh, uh, a thing larger than its reality. It's always been a symbol for stuff. Yeah, all kinds of things. And uh, this song was just one of those perfect things—a a timeless thing that just mm. sneaks in there and mm. captures that symbolic uh, stuff. And still gives you the reality of, of being there on it. Yeah, of course, the train has power, too. That fiery horse with the one eye. See, that train, mm -hmm. that power. <laughs> you, I, you know, you're an old man, but Woody would have loved that song, I think. It's real nice. On that subject, uh, his, the book about your father. This is a, a celebrated son, singer, and about his father, who's now become an <laughs> institutional figure in American folklore. Uh, by Joe Klein. It's an excellent book. Your thoughts, because th th there was a... The first 200 pages about your grandfather and grandmother, Woody's parents, and this, this description of us Oklahoma town in the early part of the century is incredible. I really loved that part of the book. I loved it personally, mm -hmm. first of all, and not, uh, I, wasn't, I was totally uncritical because, first of all, I loved the fact that somebody went out and did my own homework for me. And now I know more about my grandparents uh, than I probably would have uh, had he not written the book. So in that sense, I love it. I also love it because they're all characters. They're crazy people. They're nuts. And in that sense, uh, I know it's it's okay to be me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were they were certainly uh, originals. Uh, Charlie Guthrie, uh, your grandfather, and Nora Guthrie, your grandmother. And uh, there was a description and a song she sang. And you, as you say, that touch of madness that was there. And also the description of the, of a certain frontier town where oil sprung up. What happened to the people? Yeah. And that's an incredible thing. So, there's you. you uh, that legacy is there. And there's, there's Arlo. And what do we got now? We have in the same album, Amigo. Your first album, Amigo. What yeah. is what is Darkest Hour? Oh, 
Well, Darkest Hour is one of those weird songs that just came to me in the middle of the night one time. Some songs take years to write, you know, and some of them take about as long as it takes to sing them. This was just one of those. I don't know what it is. Is that happen? Sometimes a song can come to you almost just whole. Just jump out and appear whole as it is. Darkest Hour. And one of the astonishing aspects how that song came to be written, it just, boom, you were thinking of something, some image of some sort. And yeah, just appeared it as appeared. a song, yeah. Yeah, yeah you think, I know you live up in Massachusetts, the Berkshires, and there's a song in the same album, that's the Amigo album, uh, Massachusetts, is a tribute to where you are, oh, what, what is this reflection? Well, yeah, it's, uh, it's not really a tribute, I don't write sort of tribute songs, but uh, it's just, some places are magic at certain times, and uh, in the fall of the year, there's no more beautiful place in the world that I've ever been to, and I've been around most of it, uh, that is as magical as being in Massachusetts or New England uh, in the fall. So I was sitting around one day uh, just trying to write happy songs. <laughs> which was uh, a departure for me because all the songs previous uh, e and even many afterwards, uh, this uh, was around 1976, I guess, 75. So most of the songs I had done before that since 65 were all songs you know, of the protest era mm -hmm. and uh, it was very easy to write songs about things I was mad about or unhappy about, but to try and write things that I was pleased with or that were in inspirational in some way or another was the most difficult thing I had to try and do. And this was the beginning of that change of uh, trying to force myself to uh, be able to write from both ends of the pen. So Massachusetts. Yeah. Arlo, you, you were saying that you just got tired of hearing John Denver <laughs> sing about the Rockies, all this is your rebuttal. <laughs> you spoke of this song as, as one of the best musically. You say, yeah, I think so. It's one of the best musical things that I ever wrote, structurally. I don't know why. It's just, it's one of the most uh, complete. You feel that, oh, by the way, uh, on, on that subject was complete, yet you had a tough time rhyming a word with Massachusetts. All right. Well, I started writing the song, and I figured, what rhymes with Massachusetts? And I figured the only word that really rhymed with Massachusetts was Massachusetts. And uh, I s sort of stuck it in there a couple <laughs> of times, but it ended up being all right. <laughs> Arnold Guthrie's my guest, and... Uh, some of his songs and his uh, thoughts, his reflections. And there's one from the album, uh, Last of the Brooklyn Cowboys, When the Ship Comes In. Is that from, that's from Hobo, isn't Hobo's it? Hobo's Lullaby, Hobo's yeah. Lullaby. When the Ship Comes that's In. That's a Bob Dylan song, one of my favorite songs. I think, you know, a lot of the things that, uh, that people have been asking me about Bobby all the time, I don't know why, they assume that I know something, which I don't. Uh, but I did see one of Bobby's shows recently and I was real disappointed in it because I thought that it, to negate all of the great works that he's done was just silly on his part. Although I can understand the need to purge yourself every once in a while, I think uh, you can be over extreme in that. I think even if you want to write uh, 
inspirational tunes and songs and uh, inspire people, uh, I think he would be a foolish man to assume that he had never done so before. And this is one of his that has always been inspiration to me. So sort of switch, quite a switch in Dylan. Not that we need to belabor the point, but there has been quite a switch. Yeah. There, isn't there? And I think some of his older songs are probably even more uh, inspiring. And uh, m maybe he'll figure that out someday, too. When the ship comes in. Yeah. When the ship comes in. I think out near the end of our program, I think all the songs and the reflections, uh, you started singing 65 publicly and 15 years have passed. Has there been a change in mostly young audiences that you have and their feelings and thoughts that you sense? There's been a, f a lot of changes, sure. Because you got to remember that in 65, you know, this country was in real upheaval and a lot of cultural uh we had our own cultural revolution here, not unlike the one they had in China. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think in, in a sense, ours was a lot more successful. Uh, we didn't uh, need uh, so many leaders or stuff like that. We kind of succeeded because we didn't have leaders. We succeeded because we didn't have uh, powerful uh, groups of influence. We succeeded because it was just everyday people coming from a lot of different places for all sorts of reasons who started showing up at this place and that place and saying, we want to see this happen, we want to see that happen, no more of that stuff. And uh, we've been on that road ever since. The big change that I've seen is that we've fallen for the urge to want leaders now. And especially during election time, uh, you feel the, you, the need for leaders mostly because uh, it seems as though they have to justify themselves. So all you see on the TV is we need leadership. And it's really all, the, all it is is just the leaders trying to give you a reason uh, for them to exist. And uh, so I think we're going through that stage now. We've been going through it since, uh, since we had trouble with our leaders, since trouble uh, with Johnson and stuff like that and uh, going through the Nixon era, and we're always looking for somebody uh, to put the blame on uh, instead of just sitting back and not worrying about it too much. And the country survived for over 200 years now with most of the presidents being just kind of average-type people. Uh, and every once in a while, when you really need a great leader, you usually end up getting them. But it's not because the people demand it or anything like that. It seems to be more of just a timing. You feel though there's been there's been sort of a spillover from the '60s. There may be political changes, but socially and social changes are the ones that have. Uh, yeah. I mean, the fact that you can go to work now with hair over your ear, mm. you can go to school with blue jeans on, you can get a job in the mm. post office with a beard. I mean, all of those things, mm. although they probably seem insignificant mm. now. You got to remember what it was like yeah. back 10, 15 years ago. We have that. Well, let's see what happens. La oh, this song is portentous. <laughs> last train. It's great. ending with last train. <laughs> it's <laughs> the great. day before election. It's one of my favorite songs. Uh, Arlo Guthrie, we go on the last train. I thank you very much for being guest this morning. And uh, Warner Brothers are, are the label, is the label of Arlo Guthrie's very excellent albums indeed. And, 
Thank you. Sure. Bon voyage. Okay. Thank you.